You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Okay, um, I'd like to do a story for you called Flame of Branches. They were lovers of fire. It spoke to them both, maybe not in exactly the same way, and maybe not in exactly the same way it spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, but powerfully to each of them nonetheless. Explosion is basically fast fire, he said, gazing up into the night sky above the desert. That goes for the Big Bang, too. Following his gaze, she nodded. Embers of the burn drifted some hundreds of feet over their heads. Against the light-stippled band of the Milky Way, the flying firebrands made constellations of slowly falling stars. Maybe the stars out there are embers as well, she said, left over from the big fire that started it all. Which was where they met, not at the beginning of time, but somewhere nearer the middle, at the Burning Man gathering in the Black Rock Desert. (laughs) She was professional enough at playing with fire to have acquired from her small group of fans a stage name, The Burning Babe. He was a well-meaning and unknown amateur, at least in fire-juggling circles. They came together as part of a troupe of fire artists assembled via the Internet, a merry group of fire-eaters, burning dervishes, swallowers and jugglers of flaming swords, hurlers and catchers of blazing bolos and torch-tipped batons, and imitators in the best sense of traditional Polynesian pyro performance. Most of the members of the troupe had not previously encountered each other in the flesh world, and that was certainly true for the two of them. Yet among 40,000 post-industrial technomads who had come by plane, train, truck, automobile, and RV, who had pitched their tents, domes, shade, pyramids, and pavilions in hundreds of small, temporary, autonomous neighborhoods in the blazing brigadoon of Black Rock City, who walked or pedaled amid godly lit art cars of a thousand shapes across a vast and deep gypsum playa surmounted by a story's tall neon effigy man consumed at last in the burn via tons of fireworks and incendiaries generating the multiple flame tornadoes of fire whirls circling about his, his pyre until the whole installation collapsed and tens of thousands of Archaeo Futuro sapiens surged forward to dance in great counterclockwise vortex around the bonfire's remains, amid all that, they found each other which must have seemed like providence, or perhaps even the fated beginnings of love. When the revels in the desert ended, the city, its people, their art cars and installations, all that dreaming pageant faded like fire into thin air. Yet the two burners who had so recently found each other were still together as they drove away from the playa, sharing tales of youthful days when each of them independently discovered that magnifying lenses could also be used as burning glasses. Besides her work as a professional fire artist, back in the world outside Black Rock, she was also perennially working on a bachelor's degree in mathematics and computer science at San Jose State. He was a fire physics postdoc in the climate change and fire management program of the life sciences department at Arizona State, where his work involved the realistic simulation of fire behavior. Mutual fascination with fire from their earliest childhoods onward might not have been foundation enough upon which to build even a working relationship, however, were it not that fire spoke to both of them in deeper ways as well. When she said, building a fire is always really only building a stack of ashes, he nodded and understood. When he said, every fire is a computational process, the working out of a complex problem, she too nodded and understood. When he said, the more the virtual is realized, she said, the more the real is virtualized. Upon completion of her degree, she moved to Arizona to work with him in the fire simulation lab he headed. She became a graduate student in fire physics, 
specializing in the computer modeling of complex natural phenomena, particularly flame front dynamics in the wildland urban intermix. They worked well enough together to convince each other that realistic fire simulation might be a tractable problem after all. The USDA, Forest Service, and Bureau of Land Management, spurred by fears that global warming was increasing the frequency and severity of forest fires, flooded their lab with grants. Pay no attention to the fact that our species is also autoerotically asphyxiating the current iteration of the biosphere, he told her privately with an embarrassed laugh. But yes, we will be happy to keep taking your money. <laughs> the fire lab grew. Throughout her master's work and on into her doctoral research, she demonstrated a hitherto unsuspected aptitude for successfully blending simulation approaches. Seamlessly, she integrated level set methods for computing moving interfaces with geodesics for continuous and discrete surfaces. She wove parameterized linear superpositions of Gaussians through stochastic resampling schemes for synthetic and real fire data sets. She hybridized Lagrangian vortex particle methods with Eulerian grid-based solvers. As her advisor and mentor, he pushed her hard but in many ways she soon outstripped him in her understanding of the mathematics of fire simulation, if not the actual physics. One of their jointly produced animations, combining the simulation of gas dynamics with particle primitive fire propagation modeling, was adopted by the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, CAL FIRE, and within a year became the national standard. Converted over to tenure track at Arizona State, he found himself a tenured professor in record time. He stopped attending the annual festivals in the city of fire on the far side of the desert. Both fire and its simulation were serious business, he decided. Treating them as art or entertainment trivialized their scientific value, somehow. Despite her success as a graduate student and fire modeler, she was never satisfied. He thought her dissatisfaction was a good thing when it drove her to create ever more realistic simulations of fire. From the same dissatisfaction, however, also arose her refusal to give up her side career as a fire artist of the circus and carnival school, and of that he strongly disapproved. Not just because it took time away from her simulation work, not just because such physical fire artistry contributed to global warming and could never really be carbon neutral, jibes he could always count on to push her buttons. No, what he found most annoying was her retrograde persistence in playing with the old wild fire. It struck him, more, struck him more and more as immature behavior, something she should have gotten beyond, as he had. Other than the occasional heady flirtation, too, the relationship the fire lovers perhaps both hoped for never really kindled into flame. Although the two of them were in many ways soulmates, they did not become mates in the too-too solid flesh. One late summer evening in the lab, not long before that year's Burning Man, and only moments after yet another attempt to break through to a more physical relationship with her, toward that taste and touch that consummation so devoutly to be wished had failed yet again, he finally lost all patience. Damn it, being a Vestal Virgin went out with the Romans. Are you never going to stop playing with fire? I thought that was what we did here, she said, trying to laugh it off. You know what I mean. I'm not ready. But we've known each other for nearly four years. If I ever am ready, I'll know. How? I'll start to tremble, to shiver. How do you know that if you've never done it? I just know. Get serious, not just with me, with everything. She eyed him narrowly but said nothing. When are you going to hang up the flaming sword and the burning bolos, get married, have kids? Don't you think it's time you stopped spinning fire and developed a real relationship with someone? Why must you persist in fooling around with fire like a freak in a carnival sideshow? She turned away. Why must you persist in trying to fool around with me? Even if the business of my love life is being a nun, my love life is none of your business, Professor. The last of her humor evaporating with that final turn of phrase, she stalked stiffly out of the lab. She left early for Black Rock Desert and Burning Man. 
She came back a week after it was over. Their conversations upon her return remained cold, distant. All right, he thought. If that's the way she wants to play it, that's the way we'll play it. Under the new dispensation, he demanded more of her and was more critical of her simulations than ever before. He worked her harder and harder, maybe too hard. After six months, he regretted it and apologized, and so did she, but the damage had been done. Over those months, she had become estranged from him, a stranger who became stranger all the time. Early one morning, she staggered into his office. She looked terrible, dark circles under her eyes, her lank hair disheveled, as if she'd been up all night, as if she'd been up several nights running. But what about the burning bush then, she asked. Pardon? You said every fire is a computational process. Inputs are fuel, oxygen, and spark. Outputs are light, heat, and incomplete combustion products, ash, smoke, soot. What about the burning bush, though? What is it computing? I never really thought about it. Why isn't the burning bush consumed? Does it have any outputs besides light? He stared at her. Maybe the voice was its output, he said, half seriously. The voice of the angel of the Lord? I am that I am? Hmm. If you believe a bush can burn and not be consumed by the flame, I suppose you can believe in eternal life or whatever. She did not really hear him. So preoccupied was she with her own thoughts. Names and flames, that's an idea. He hoped it was an idea he could use in their mutual work. At this point, it seemed to him only that she was perhaps too consumed by the very perfection of virtual fire she kept working so hard to achieve. Only later did he realize that this was also when he began to truly lose her. Out of her overwrought, overtired state, she did achieve something amazing, a self-evolving algorithm which produced a simulation of fire that was as close as anyone had ever come to how real fire behaved in real time. It was a beautiful thing, one that moved the simulation of fire beyond causality into deep dynamicality. Unfortunately, her program was also very costly in terms of computational time and energy. He did not recognize the real value of it when he first saw it. The work of creating it had been costly to her, too. He didn't fully acknowledge that, either, until it was far too late. True, he couldn't help but observe the way the patterns of her speech fell more and more obsessively into chiasmus and antimetaboly, turns of phrase he first noticed that day she blew up at him. He also could not help but see the way pictures of Mobius strips, Klein bottles, mazes, labyrinths, and other oddly turned structures proliferated on the walls of her cubicle and on her computer screens. He saw, too, how those twisting images came to be accompanied on the walls and screens by other, more unaccustomed things, the text of a 16th century poem called The Burning Babe, beside an English version of a Scottish Gaelic Snow White tale called La Sargeig, a name which translated to Flame of Branches. Images of saints and saviors with flaming sacred hearts, apostles with tongues of fire dancing above their brows, robed figures with bent halos like glowing Mobius strip infinity signs hovering in the air above them, paintings of stainless virgins eternally watching altar fires, ready to rekindle the flames from the rays of the sun should the hearth fires ever go out. He didn't understand how far it had all gone until she left that last and finest self-evolving fire simulation program to him as a gift, then dropped out of graduate school, of the fire lab, of everything, and went off to find herself. It was the final proof, if he'd needed any, that she had suffered a complete nervous collapse and was utterly lost in a maze of her own making. <clears throat> As with all things about her, it was not that simple. She had lost herself to what the burning bush meant, in a deep sense, computationally. 
She had lost herself to undecidability and complementarity in informational and physical systems, to Turing's halting problem and quantum states before observation, to ciphers of transposition and substitution. She lost herself to incompatible properties not simultaneously observable, yet nonetheless existing, coexisting at a deeper level in mathematics and quantum computing. She amazed herself with the idea that, according to ZIFT tests and power law distributions, both the unconscious and junk DNA were structured like a language. She abandoned herself to words funhouse mirrored by chiasmus and antimetaboly into new orders and new meanings. She dedicated herself to exploring consciousness as a pattern which persisted independent of the substrate on which it was realized. She gave herself to burning, yet not being consumed. By the time she dropped out, out and left the fire lab, she had gone as far down the roads of physical and digital fire as she could. The fire simulation she gave her mentor might be the best that could be achieved by following such paths, but it was not good enough for her. Having taken her mentor's jibes about climate change and carbon neutrality to heart in ways he could never have predicted, she now betook herself to different roads, different paths. As a mendicant fire artist performing under the name of Lazar Geig, she moved among buskers, street ma magicians, AR, VR, post-silicon carnies, performers of a hundred sorts, in order to finance her way around the world. When at last she came to India and the Himalayas, it was to master not the fire in the hand or on the screen, but the fire in the mind. Her fire lab mentor, she knew, would probably have seen it all as atavistic and superstitious. And there were times, after studying with so many gurus and lamas and sadhus who claimed to practice the siddhi of kadivija, the paranormal power of mystic heat, but who were somehow never able to convey the technique of that power to her, that she almost agreed with her fellow burner's assessment that such paranormal pyrokinetics were all a sham, a confidence game practiced by charlatans upon the gullible and unwary. Until it happened. Sitting in a snowstorm, becoming hypothermic as a Nepalese shaman drummed and danced relentlessly around her, her body was suddenly racked with a strange deep shiver as she fell into a rhythm-driven trance. In a mind state like the most lucid of dreams, she traveled into herself, deep into the twining snakes of her own DNA, and saw their dragon reality. The dragons spoke into her thoughts. They told her that fire, too, like the unconscious, like dreams, like the non-coding portions of DNA dismissed as junk, was structured not like code, but like a language. Intimate understanding of the deep, self-evolving language of life and fire and dreams she now knew had been lost to confusion and diaspora and everything else the story of Babel symbolized, but the language itself persisted. The language of the unconsuming flame that spoke to Moses, the language of the paraclete speaking in the tongues of fire which came to rest above the heads of the apostles, the language of tikkun by which the holy sparks entrapped in matter swarmed up on their way to being reunited with divinity, like burning bees rejoining a hive of fire the language whose existence explained the similarities in the altered and mystical state experiences of individuals from vastly different cultures, the language of light, the word of fire that was in the beginning, the language that was the feminine side of the divine, that was the dream behind the stars, that was spoken in photons shed by twisting dragon molecules in their everyday operations. It was not a language she understood by translating. It was a language by which she was translated into understanding. For warmth and light to ward off hypothermia, she tapped into the unconsuming fire that always dwelt in the very cells of her body. It now seemed almost a trivial thing, but she did it anyway. Having only begun to learn this language by which she was being translated, she now wished to stay alive and keep learning its deeper mysteries, at least for the time being. Once she had learned all the shaman could teach her, she returned to her life as a traveling fire artist. As falling stars to mere earthly fireworks was her artistry now, 
in comparison to everything she had achieved before. Most of the world, alas, could not tell the difference. On the streets and in the stations, people continued to see only a beggarly firebusker. They dismissed her pyrokinesis as tricks and gimmicks. For all that her small audiences might consume her, they could never really taste her. As she grew more and more adept at externalizing the fire in her mind, their lack of understanding and appreciation concerned her less and less. Perfecting that mindful art of fire was more important to her than whether or not the people on the streets fully grasped what she was doing. Although she didn't much care for what the world had become, she couldn't quite stop caring about it. In that world's ongoing digital diaspora, time increasingly sublimed into space, nature disappeared into culture, reality dissipated into simulation, response vanished into stimulus. Gaining deep wisdom had been supplanted by gaming the system. A screenlit dark age had descended upon her era like the coming of some Potemkin neon New Jerusalem, a thousand-year Reich in which people busily surveilled themselves, turning all the most private spaces of their lives inside out for public consumption, until their minds, minds became only social places where all the depth was on the surface. Only to the extent that their existence was noted and consumed by others did they really consider themselves as continuing to, to exist at all. She found that in such an everted and self-consuming world, what was true was seldom very popular, and what was popular was seldom very true. Despite her best efforts, the world through which she moved now no longer much moved her. Of necessity, she became increasingly ascetic, introverted, detached. She gave more and more of herself to the idea that to fully understand fire, one must be fully understood by fire. But being understood and being consumed were not necessarily the same thing. As the years passed, her fire lab mentor and would-be lover had prospered, married, fathered, child fathered children, and largely forgot his youthful idealism. The most commonly proffered technological and theological solutions to humanity's predicament he'd long mocked, but he no longer thought much about alternative magics for saving the world. Instead, he concentrated on making his millions through companies spun off his simulation work, all in hopes of sailing beyond the retirement sunset to some moderately affordable South Sea Island, which, with luck, would not yet have been inundated by the rising seas of shifting climate. Despite his hunkering down, he still thought of her from time to time, wondering if she might have met and married some aging cube farm orc killer or parental basement troglodyte as quirky as she ever was herself. In a perfunctory fashion, he even tried to locate her. He did not become serious about that search, however, until the last fire simulation program she developed for him became a profitable commodity. Once he'd put together his most successful company around what had been her work, after all, he felt obligated to find her <laughs> and see to it that she received her fair share of the proceeds. Although when she created it for the lab, her fire simulation algorithm had been almost prohibitively expensive in computation time and energy, the ever-increasing speed and efficiency and ever-dwindling cost of computing had, over the years, Moore's lawed the types of platforms capable of running her simulation. What once could only be performed on big mainframes eventually moved to laptops, then to handphone screens. Her simulation's popularity didn't really take off, however, until the fire lab director hit upon the idea of wearable fire. Garments that interwove quantum dot solar power fibers, nanoprocessors, and laser diode projection cells. In his off-campus role as CEO of SimFire Aesthetics, the private firm he created to market the tech, he pushed the new product until he had a hit on his hands. Under a dozen brand names, clothing featuring wearable fire became popular at many levels of society. Under the Hercules label, it was adopted early on as an expensive casual shirt line favored by muscular young men. Escort service workers, high-end prostitutes, and teenage girls were also all early adopters of entire ensembles of flame under the Hot E Couture brand. 
By the time the wearable fire tech grew so popular, it began to move distinctly down market, the beginning of the end, he had still not found his former graduate student and lost soulmate. Having left no contact information and performing in the streets under a name he did not know, she had proven more difficult to find than he would have thought possible. He had almost given up on the prospect of ever locating her when he happened to be passing by the federal building one winter day and saw a small political demonstration underway. Beyond the demonstrators, beggars and street performers tried to work the few business folk making their ways to dinner or home across the wintry plaza. On the periphery of the small crowd, members of the federal building security detail stood by, looking bored, despite the fact that parts of the speaker's harangue seemed aimed at them. He was used to manic preachers ranting from their Bibles, but this was different. From curiosity, he stopped to listen. Though they amputate us from the body politic, we still haunt them with hallucinations of feeling and sensation, a phantom limb of conscience, said a woman in slam poet cadences, holding a bullhorn and a handmade sign bearing the legend, war makes peace like hate makes love like murder makes justice. As the speaker behind the bullhorn went on, he saw a hollow-eyed scarecrow of a woman moving almost unnoticed among the audience of demonstrators, lighting their vigil candles. He couldn't pin down what was odd about the skeletally thin woman's actions until he realized that, through some ledger domain, she was lighting their candles with the tip of her finger alone, without match or cigarette lighter. Then he got a good look at her face and recognized her. He was so spooked by how the years had ravaged her that he turned and quickly strode away before she might see and recognize him. As the winter deepened toward a cold Christmas, he screwed up his courage and returned to the plaza. It took a while, but eventually he found her amid the buskers, strolling players, and streetwalkers. She was selling bags of roasted chestnuts on what, in less brutal weather, was probably a busy corner, her corner, he sensed. He saw no fire, yet somehow the chestnuts were kept piping hot. Approaching the corner, he bought a bag from her. When she looked at his face, he saw no hint of recognition in her eyes, a fact which both relieved and saddened him. At last, on Christmas Eve, he returned a third time, determined to speak with her. He had a chauffeur drop him at a corner just east of the plaza. The anti-terror concrete vehicle barriers prevented anything larger than a bicycle from rolling onto the plaza. Bicycles, too, had to be parked at least 100 feet from the federal building. The security detail saw to that. A chill wind flecked with the occasional snowflake, ran down the street canyons, and poured across the plaza. The night was so frigid, it made both the last-minute Christmas shopping crowd and the street people who worked that crowd much sparser than usual. Two of the security details, boys in black, stood by the federal building's main entrance, faces hard and bleak in the bleak hardscape of the winter city. The vigilant protesters, standing not far from them, looked equally desolate and forlorn. As he came toward her corner, he saw someone lying on the cold concrete. He began to run. Reaching her, he shook her by the shoulder, calling her name as he knelt beside her. Her eyes opened as he raised her to a half-sitting position against his chest. A prolonged, deep shiver swept through her body. She said his name. Her gaze held nothing judgmental in it. She seemed to be watching him from far away, but with the most intimate understanding. I'm sorry, he said, as another of those long, deep shivers moved through her frame like a tremor deep inside the earth. No need to blame yourself or praise my work, she said in a reedy voice out of a weak smile. She must be delusional, he thought. Unable to say anything aloud, he only nodded and listened. I never felt warm enough, you see. If I had, I never would have bothered with all this. I had to do what I've done, even if the world never warmed to what I was doing. Another deep tremor ran through her. She fell silent, her eyes closed, and he couldn't be sure she was still conscious. He pressed his hand to her cheek, then snatched it away. Her face felt hot, not like fever, but like the heat from a furnace. No, impossible. He must be imagining it. I'll get help, he said, laying her on her side. Don't worry, I'll be right back. 
He raced back across the plaza to get his chauffeur, punching in 911 on his phone as he ran. To the emergency dispatcher who answered, he hurriedly gave details about the location of a presumed hypothermia victim. Trying to keep from slipping in the icy patches as he ran, he said a quick prayer they might get her to shelter and medical care in time. <clears throat> she didn't move, but she was far away. From the quantum co computational properties in her own DNA, she was exteriorizing the singularity-making capacity of her individual consciousness, scaling that up in controllable fashion, lining up singularities and omega points great and small inside herself. Her mind was filled with the light of the great, golden, flashing, rooting, branching thing, at once sphere and tree and bonfire. The branching, burning thing was not consumed because its branching was its burning. She was creating in herself an aleph, a transparent singularity, a mind of light dreaming of twisted rainbow snake ladders with fiery wings, a world tree, bodhi tree, cross tree of knowledge wrapped in serpent and helix and starry way, all twisting about each other until they had fused into an infinitely varied oneness. The endlessly shifting flame of branching timelines of endlessly parallel universes was an eternal sensitive plant of sensitive flame that burned but was not consumed and through which she climbed, clothed in her own flame of branches, climbing out of herself by climbing into herself. Her mind, in computational terms, was becoming infinitely open, even as, in spatiotemporal terms, her physical existence was becoming completely closed. Death, she realized, was the toxic mimic of transcendence. This was not dying. <clears throat> it was not even just saving herself by sacrificing herself. All the flames of branches were part of the same tree. All the tongues of fire spoke the same language, the same vast word. That word spoke her now, and she was translated into light. Before he and his chauffeur could get back to her at the corner where she had lain, he had to avert his eyes against a sudden and overwhelming blast of brightness. Even as he did so, he realized that there was something odd about the blast. It was curiously soundless and devoid of heat and not blowing outward like an explosion, but rather sucking inward like an implosion. He struggled toward the pillar of light rising between earth and sky, even as it shrank and vanished. As he ran, the stiff, insucking wind guttered away. From among the few street people and vigil protesters still outside on such a frostbitten night, others came running too. They stood in silence about the corner where she had been. Of her clothes and her body, no trace remained, no ash, no smoke, no soot. No slightest hint of burning flesh in the air, only a white shadow on the concrete, wind blasted in the shape of a woman curled in the fetal position. By the time the two federal building security officers showed up to investigate and take down reports from eyewitnesses, everyone seemed to have already developed a theory. A social justice demonstrator contended the woman called Flame of Branches had immolated herself in an act of protest against a criminally unjust government and brutally cruel economic system. A street magician said the woman had pulled off a fine vanishing act. He offered to pay good money to learn how she had done that trick. A drunkard ventured that her disappearance was due to spontaneous human consumption, combustion. A manic street preacher said she was snatched away by angels. A mumbling panhandler said she was beamed out by flying saucers. He listened for a while. Eventually, the cold drove the security officers and the bystanders along on their separate ways. No one even bothered to put police tape around the scene. All of that could wait until the warmth of morning. The white, wind-blasted shadow didn't seem to be going anywhere. He had just begun to walk away, glancing back, when he saw that someone else had already taken up position on Flame of Branch's corner. A prostitute, smiling and young, vibrant and vital against the cold, dressed in what he recognized as a Simfire smoking hot bodysuit Model 3100. 
even as he watched, a prospective John, hunched against the wintry night, approached her and began to negotiate. He turned up his collar against the wind and walked on, across the empty plaza, to the deserted streets beyond. Above him, the gaudy lights of the city at Christmas had eaten all the stars out of the big bowl of the sky, leaving him hungry for something he couldn't quite remember, or perhaps had never truly tasted. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.